Have you ever been a rock star in your job or career and then moved to another company or a new business unit and you no longer are and you start doubting? What have I done wrong? What has changed? And you know, sometimes it may not be you. We often think we can fix things with improving the process, changing the people, implementing a new tool or platform. But at the end of the day, one of the missing things that I have found time and time again, and this is part of the CEO's compass, is a lack of understanding of the culture. And also, it could be the culture that needs to be fixed. And so this is where my work is so aligned with my guest, Jay Hodge. We go on talking about all the technical work we can do on ourselves, on the process, on the business. But at the end of the day, you might want to look a little bit deeper into the culture. Let's listen. Basically, what I do with an organization is I help them reach their potential. It's in one sentence. That's the easiest way to say it. So many organizations, when I get contacted by an organization, they'll say, hey, this is what we want to do, our qualities. We're struggling with quality. We're struggling with our financials. Our processes are broken. We're just so inefficient. And they want to focus on that. But what they fail to understand is that every single one of those is a result of their culture. You can change processes all day long, but if you don't change the culture of the people that are embedded and who live in those processes, the process won't stick. It won't change. It won't make a difference. It's just a task. And so when I work with an organization, everything that I do with an organization is cultural driven. It may manifest itself through the quality side. It may manifest itself through revenue generation. It may manifest itself through leadership. A lot of times it's leadership. And it may manifest itself through different processes and operations. But it's always connected, always connected to the culture. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I want to thank you again for joining me on another amazing episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I am truly blessed by having amazing leaders come to me week after week so we can share their insights with you and hopefully inspire you. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review so we can continue to bring you great programming. And now. I am honored to share the mic with my amazing guest, Jay Hodge. Jay is the founder and president of Jay Hodge and Associates, a lean manufacturing, lean management consulting firm consisting of an extensive network of independent experts in multiple fields, including strategic deployment, lean leadership development, clinical and manufacturing operations, and many, many different areas, including lean management systems across multiple industries. Jay is also the host of the Thousand Year Legacy Podcast and author of The Lean Treasure Chest and is the creator of 
of the dynamic elemental engagement system used to effectively drive cultural transformation within any organization. And he continues to be so accomplished with over 30 years of demonstrated operational leadership in roles ranging from frontline supervision to vice president within multiple organizations, including the U.S. Marine Corps, Ford, General Motors, Caterpillar, Tenet Health, and Toyota. And before I turn the mic over to him, he has a quote on his profile. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act, but an habit by Aristotle. So, Jay, it is my honor to welcome you onto the show and inspire our audiences. Well, thank you, Deb. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for what you do through your podcast as well. Thank you so much. And for our listeners here, Jay's podcast, The Thousand Year Legacy, an amazing, amazing interview. I had the good fortune of being a guest on his show and can't wait to also bring that conversation to you as well. But I'm curious, this quote, why did you land on that quote as part of your profile? It was kind of a journey working with Ford, then General Motors, and then Toyota. You're talking about basically two ends of the spectrum from operations and a cultural perspective. And so when I saw that quote years ago, it resonated because it's absolutely the truth. Excellence isn't something we just demonstrate. It's something who we are. I would change the quote if I was Aristotle, which I'm not because he's far smarter than I am. But excellence is who we are. It permeates everything that we do. It's not just what we do when we're at work, when people are watching us. It's not what we do in the office when the door's closed and no one's watching us. It's not what we do when we're driving. It's not just what we do at home. It it permeates literally everything in our lives. It almost defines who we are. I mean, it's basically being the best human we can. And to your point about leaving a lasting legacy, I too, in my on my website, I talk about I don't just provide a service, but I leave a lasting impact. And so we are trying to leave our mark on society. And I'm so forward to looking forward to this conversation because we have had similar paths in operations in different industries, helping to be organizations to be more efficient, productive, profitable, whatever that is, but also varied back backgrounds for which I'm going to pick your brain and ask you a lot of questions. But for our listeners, please share a little bit about yourself personally and the journey that you've been on. Sure. So if I was to define myself or explain a little about myself, I'm a Christian. I am married to Barbara. I have three phenomenal children, a United States Marine, and then I'm a leader. And I, I say I'm a leader because people have called me a leader. I don't have the right to call myself a leader. I'm a leader because people have said, you have been our leader. So I don't take that as something, hey, I'm a, look at me, I'm a leader. But my journey through life has basically defined who I am. And when I say defined who I am, I'm talking about the stupid mistakes I've made. And I've made a bunch of stupid mistakes on a personal level, at a professional level, as a Marine. But I think a lot of who I am and what I've become is a result of those mistakes and being humble enough to say, boy, you are an idiot. That was a really stupid thing to do. I hope you learned something from this. And being able to take that and kind of mold my next steps. And it allows me to relate with people who are potentially going to make the same mistakes, whether it be on a professional level, on a personal level at church, coaching wrestling, coaching soccer. It allows me to have a perspective that allows me to relate to people who may be in the same path. You know, we do this work of 
we make our mistakes, we acknowledge them, and I'll go off on another tangent there in a moment, but our ability to, for the right people that are ready to hear our thoughts on these things, we share our ideas so they don't make the same mistakes. But I'm curious because I've had a few of these happen to me. We don't give advice because we want to be acknowledged and praised. It's kind of an effect of the people we impact. But have you ever had a situation in the moment or many years later where you shared a piece of advice with somebody and then they came back and acknowledged you that you were right, wrong, or other? Oh, many times. It covers all three of those, right, wrong, or the other. And it's interesting because you can take the right as, hey, I'm the greatest, which I refuse to do. Someone comes to me and says, hey, thank you for the advice. You're absolutely right. Say, it's not me. It's just because I made a mistake and God's blessed me and, and I'm glad that I get help. All praise goes to him. When they've come back to me and said, you know what? You weren't on base. You were, you were actually off base there. I'm like, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm not always right. I gave you my opinion based upon my perspective and my own knowledge and skill set, experience, blah, blah, blah. But I'm glad you worked it out. Thank you for letting me know that I wasn't right. And what, how was I not right? Tell me that way, because everything is a learning experience. Every interaction you have or every experience is an opportunity to learn. There's going to be some people out there that you're going to give advice to, and they're going to choose the opposite way, but never, ever surface the fact that you may have been right, and I should have listened to what you say. That's not why I give someone advice. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them. And if they learn from that opportunity... Maybe they'll understand one day when someone asks them for advice and the person doesn't take the advice and they don't take it personally either. There's so many things in what you say, and that's why we resonate so well. And I wanted to have this interview with you is that I teach emerging leaders and emerging leaders, one would often think, okay, maybe they're five, 10 years into a career. But I also define emerging leaders as those that have arrived of a place of awareness to say, okay, what I've been doing in the past may or may not have been good. But now I am aware on my impact on my work, my family, my community, and I'm ready to make some changes. And a few of the things that you talked about are the things that I talk about. One, you having the courage to offer your thoughts to other people. So often people hold back, not having the courage to say what they'd like to say or what should be said. And then having the courage and getting feedback, good, bad, or mm, not so sure, being able to receive feedback in the context of its data, its information. And maybe the advice wasn't good for this person, or maybe I can fine tune it for the next person that comes across my path. Absolutely. Sometimes we get into positions of authority, director, VP, senior VP, president, and all of a sudden we may think that we don't need feedback anymore. We're at the, we're at the top. We should be the ones providing the advice and insight. A great leader is probably asking more questions than, than providing answers. And that's exactly what I say sometimes. So often we're so technically talented. We want to share our information and People know that you're the smartest person in the room, but the greatest wisdom or the wise person you could be is by listening more and seeing what's actually going on. And when you speak, it's so much more valuable. But I would love to get a little bit more into, I always love elevating my guest, is the work that you do. So I would love to know a little bit more about the work you do with CEOs, senior leaders, and organizations who are open to the kind of work that you provide in terms of helping their companies through the transformation. Just tell us a little bit more about the kind of work that you do. Basically, what I do with an organization is I help them reach their potential. It's in one sentence. That's the easiest way to say it. 
So many organizations, when I get contacted by an organization, they'll say, hey, this is what we want to do. We're struggling with quality. We're struggling with our financials. Our processes are broken. We're just so inefficient. And they want to focus on that. But what they fail to understand is that every single one of those is a result of their culture. You can change processes all day long, but if you don't change the culture of the people that are embedded and who live in those processes, the process won't stick. It won't change. It won't make a difference. It's just a task. And so when I work with an organization, everything that I do with an organization is cultural driven. It may manifest itself through the quality side. It may manifest itself through revenue generation. It may manifest itself through leadership. A lot of times it's leadership. And it may manifest itself through different processes and operations, but it's always connected, always connected to the culture. So you start with the culture first. You don't start with, okay, I'm going to teach you my process, lean methodology. Here are the things that you should be doing. You lead from a place of assuring the right culture is in place before moving into the tactical tools that help them achieve those things. I can't say that I lead by changing the culture at the beginning. When I go into an organization, The cultural change is part of the lean activity or part of the quality activity because if all I do is come in and teach theoretical, high-level, pie-in-the-sky, fluffy cloud theory about culture without demonstrating it through what a process looks like, it's just ideals, it's just fluffy. But if I can demonstrate culture through the processes, through the quality initiatives, through how the interaction between physicians and nurses, how that takes place, That's really what culture is. It's how we interact with our environment through processes and everything else we do. It goes back to a great example of culture would be going into a McDonald's. You walk into a McDonald's. You're not greeted. There's three tables that are dirty. The person at the counter has a shirt untucked. They don't greet you. They take your order. Don't say thank you. They forget to give you your cup. They walk back while your order is being prepared and talk with the person making burgers. That's the culture. When I walk out of that McDonald's, you have demonstrated your culture through your habits and behaviors. But if I walk into a five-star restaurant, I walk in, the person opens the door for me. The person standing at the counter greets me. Thank you. How are you today? You have a very nice tie on. Blah, 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 whatever. I don't wear ties very often, but you know, hey. And they, how many do you have with your party today? Okay. Then they take us back to our table. They pull my wife's chair out for her. She sits down. They take the napkins and they put it over our laps. They stand there and ask us what we would like to drink. They don't write it down. They memorize it. They go back. They get it. They bring come back out with our drinks. They bring the meal out and ask us about our meal. They bring the meal out. They're constantly asking what we would like. There's no stains on their outfit. The towel over their arm is clean. They're walking in a brisk manner. They're not standing around talking to other waiters and waitresses. They've just demonstrated their culture. And the culture that they demonstrated Both sides, the McDonald's and the five-star restaurant, is a direct result of the leadership. So I would love to react to that because it's funny. My husband, as my children start leaving the nest, (laughs) we have this habit of going out to lunch on Saturdays now. And we went to what I thought was a three- or four-star restaurant. And if you had to check the box, did they transactionally take care of us, check on us? Can we refill your water? Here's your check transactionally, 
They took care of us. And one could say, that's a great restaurant. On the other hand, they never made a personal connection. They didn't necessarily create extra conversations, stay an extra two or three seconds with us, bantering a little bit. And I don't know if they realize that we're never going back there again. Because the experience was, again, we can check the box. We had a good meal. We came and went. It was a transaction. They didn't leave a lasting impact. That's exactly right. It goes back to any organization, whether it be a restaurant, whether it be a hospital, understanding what their customers or patients value. And it's amazing to me. It's almost terrifying. When I go into a hospital specifically, and I'll sit down with the leadership team, CEOs, directors, all of that, and I ask, what do our patients value? And inevitably, without exception, after six, seven, eight, nine, ten answers, the room goes silent. I don't care if there's 20 people in the room or 30 people in the room. And the reason I bring this up is because if we can't define what our patients value, why should they choose us over anybody else that does what we do? So try these out for size. Getting stuck once, a quiet at night, a second pillow, good food, comfortable accommodations for my families, clean bathroom, a walker in the room, OT and PT that happens on time, a nurse that answers the call light, good communication with my physician, good communication with my nurse, good follow-up visit information, all of these things. And I've actually made lists with hospitals and the list is anywhere from 65 to 80, depending upon how we word things. But what's terrifying is that when I'm sitting in the room and I tell them, I'm stepping on your toes and I'm doing it for a reason. Because if you stop our five or six answers and you are the leadership team for this entire hospital and you can't define why that person driving down the road should turn left into your parking lot or right into the other hospital's parking lot, if you can't define why that they should do that, then there's no reason for them to do it because you're not doing anything different than anybody else. And then what's so important is the next question I ask them is, have you ever made a list? And they go, heck no, I've trained probably... 10,000 people on this, and I've gotten eight yeses to that question. And the reason that that's so important is if if I've got 10 people in a room and I ask you to all make a list of what our patients value, every single list is going to be different. They can have some similarities, but they're going to be different. In the Marine Corps, the way you have mission success is you create operational alignment. If I've got 10 people in the room working off of 10 different lists, I don't have any alignment. But what happens when I take those 10 lists and I combine them into one list and everybody starts working off the same list. I create alignment in an organization, hence impact on the patients, on the customers. It's kind of a self-revealing moment and I'm stepping on their toes and all of a sudden they go, oh my gosh, this is so simple. It's such a common sense concept, but the problem with common sense is that it's not common. You are just such a friendly person in your style and the way you come across. And the next thing you know, you floor them with that question. I'm sure it stings. <laughs> what you say is so interesting because recently I had to work with my mother to transition her from a hospital situation to five or six weeks in a step-down care facility. And based on I don't know, history, perspective. We were expecting a bad experience. But when we had our discovery, our onboarding, moving her into a step-down care facility, and then the interaction with all the people and the connectivity and everybody was on the same page. So if I'm getting an email, a text, or a phone call, there's no disconnect. They're all on the same page. They know the current status of her health situation. And 
it was one of the first times I was actually completely delighted by the healthcare experience. So it must be something in the leadership and in the culture. Now, I am going to dig deep because this is really an experience that I have. And and I often wonder when organizations come and seek you out, are they at a place of the culture is right, they're ready, and they want to make operational improvements? Or are they at a place where we just want to get our quality up and we want to get our service better and we want this particular revenue goal? And through the journey, they evolve a culture that aligns with those things. I'm just curious what place or what state of mind, what's the current state of the customer when they call you? They have the right culture and they're looking to improve what they're already doing or they come in saying, I just want to improve these metrics for whatever scorecard and then they might be on a cultural journey. Most often, even organizations that contact me and say we have the right culture don't. A lot of organizations They'll have the senior leaders and the directors all sitting in a room going, boy, our leadership team is all on board. Man, we've got the culture we need, not realizing that 90% of their culture is not directors and above. It's below directors. It's the supervisors, the managers, the floor nurses, the techs, the EVS people, the person cleaning the floor, the person working behind the coffee counter, the person dishing out the food, the person bringing up the food. So even organizations that tell me that we have the right culture We want to move forward in this journey. A lot of times when I dig in and I start, because I spend a lot of time observing at first, getting the real story. A lot of times I have to be very honest with them and saying, your culture is going in the right direction, but you haven't arrived. And to be honest, no culture ever does arrive. It's just that the great organizations are willing to take the journey. Whereas the crappy organizations, say it like it is, sorry, crappy organizations don't even want to acknowledge culture as probably the most significant part of their operational journey. Early in our interview, you talked about making mistakes and being humble and acknowledging them. I was on a lean project trying to get cost savings by moving an outsource process back in within the operations. And I made one of the greatest mistakes in change management. We had a bunch of engineers and people in the room saying, these are the adjustments we're going to make to get this operational efficiency. And the engineers made the changes in the process. And then the next day, they report back the operations the people on the floor, the frontline people made the adjustments back. And I'm saying, oh my goodness. And it was easy to say, oh, they're just not on board. They're just trying to be difficult. But one of the things that I realized was, and I can't believe I made this mistake, is I didn't spend the time getting to understand the people that were an integral part of that frontline work creating that product, delivering that service, and had we brought them into the project and maybe one, either agree with the process change or based on their experience and perspective, we may have implemented a slightly different change. As soon as I understood who they are, their expertise, their culture, their pride, and we brought them on board, we were able to move forward with the project and probably with a better solution. I've had the exact same experience, exact same experience. And to your point, Sometimes we think the people that have the bachelor's and the master's degrees are the experts. They're not. It's the people on the front line that do it every single day. And and I've, I've done the same thing that you did, made that same mistake. But it goes back to humility. When we realized the mistake we'd made and we pulled them in, we were humble enough. The entire group, we apologized to this group of floor workers and we said, listen, we did this wrong. We made this mistake. We did not include you. And we absolutely need your input. And guess what? They were 100% on board. But if we'd have just said, 
yeah, we didn't do this right. What do you think? They probably would have just done nothing. But we were humble enough to say, yep. And I think every person that understands lean or works with lean is going to make that mistake at some point. And I think that's an important mistake to make because you may have 10 groups that you've included. And there's this 11th group. You think, well, they're not really that significant in this process. We'll just go ahead. And then we find out that they were actually very, very, very significant. And I think sometimes it goes back to truly understanding lean. I think there's a big misconception out there with lean is that lean is all about reducing waste. It's all about efficiency. If you boil lean down all the way to its base level, lean is about value. Because the only reason you're trying to make something more efficient, you're trying to reduce the waste is because you want to increase the value that that process delivers to the patients or the customers. But sometimes we think, hey, let's just eliminate waste. Let's just make this more efficient. Why? And I like to do what's called a, a value circle where you put the change you're looking to make in the center of this big circle. And then around the circle, you have a much bigger circle and you segment off pie pieces. You list each of those pieces as this is the, the patient, this is the doctor, this is the radiology group. And you list what this change, how this change is going to add value or impact each of those groups. And you can end up with 20 different pie pieces around this. But at that point, at least you know what this one single change is going to impact this group. And the only way you know that is because you included them. Your perspective on teaching lean, being a guide on the lean journey, is very different from where I came from. And it's only lately that I realized or learned from somebody else that lean is rooted in being more of a servant leader. And to your point, providing value. I fortunately or unfortunately, was part of an organization where they said, we're not going to do this kind of continuous improvement program. We're on a lean journey. We're going to teach lean. We're going to implement lean. And the engine behind it was the cost savings engine to qualify and quantify the cost savings, both in operational costs and material costs. And so we implemented a program to do just that. And we were successful. We cut costs. Never, ever, in our teaching, was it rooted in how can we provide value to the customer, the people, and being a servant leader? So I'm just curious, I mean, have you seen that in the industry, the way it's introduced? Because you obviously have had a completely different journey when it comes to bringing this operating system to organizations. I have, and it's from trial and error. And Toyota was very, very much responsible for my understanding of lean. We look at lean, a lot of organizations, unfortunately, look at lean as a toolbox. It's not. Lean is a mindset. Lean impacts every thought about every process that we do. And that's what makes Toyota so different, say, than from a GM or a Ford, is that what makes Toyota different, they use a lot of the same robots. They use a lot of the same suppliers. They use a lot of the same transportation companies, materials, all of that. But what makes Toyota different is how they think about every single thing that they do. Everything is an opportunity to get better. And whereas a lot of organizations step over these little insignificant opportunities because it's not worth our time, Toyota doesn't do that. They see thing, everything as an opportunity to add more value for their customers. And I've had a lot of people say to me, because I worked for Toyota for years, even though I don't work for them now, Toyota seems to be behind other manufacturers as far as like introducing really cool gadgets and new technology and stuff. I can't argue that fact. From my experience, a lot of this new technology and these trinkets and stuff that these cars are filled with, 
that costs $1,500 each to fix, and I can't figure out why you would want to do that. They go through a life cycle where they have to mature. Toyota is smart enough to know, let the technology mature, introduce it two years, three years later than some of these other car manufacturers when it's perfected. And then you don't have to worry because if you think about it, what is Toyota's main thing? Reliability and quality. If I'm throwing a bunch of new stuff in there that's not proven, that could impact how people see my car. So wait a couple of years, let the technology be perfected, then introduce it. My quality stays where it's supposed to be. So different mindset. Sometimes the simple things, just a mindset shift is all that we need to do. And I'll say it, maybe we don't need consultants to fix our problem. We can go to the essence and the simplicity of solving a problem. I actually worked for one client, really, really, really small client. And one of the quality systems things we have to do is to have communication processes, how we cascade customer information. And one of the things I said, I'm looking for their system. I'm looking for their spreadsheet. I'm looking for their monthly meeting. I said, where's your communication tool? What do you do? And he said, well, we just talk to each other. We talk to each other every day. And I'm <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, oh, wow. So they have built a foundation in, it's a small company. They depend on each other. They communicate with each other frequently. They nail that process because they're highly successful. And only then, once you get the simplicity and the essentials in place, perfection of the communication process, do we then start to automate or add some bells and whistles to maybe improve the efficiency? But don't throw a tool at something to solve a problem. Get the mindset, get the culture right first. That's exactly right. Communication is key. So I want to elevate you. I am to a fault. I always elevate the guests, but I would like to know a little bit about a story where you were asked into an organization. They maybe were struggling, whether it was the culture, whether it was their efficiencies or what have you. Maybe you had some people that challenged you when you came in, but after you did the work with that organization, they were transformed. And I would love to know what was that transformation and how were they transformed? Sure. had an organization that I went into and they had brought consultants in before. And consultants are our own worst enemy. I'm just going to be honest. We've got consultants out there that are charging astronomical figures to generate reports and tell you stuff that you already know. In my opinion, that's not the job of a consultant. If a consultant can't hand you something that says, this is what we found, this is what we accomplished, and this is the results of it, this is where I added value, then you shouldn't be in consulting because it's not about the reports. It's about meaningful change. Now, I didn't say change. I said meaningful, positive change because I can change stuff all day long. But I went into an organization and they were very much nervous about any consultants because of previous consultants. And I threw on scrubs and I just spent all my time on the floor in the hospital, in the OR, as a matter of fact. Mopping floors, prepping other rooms, helping them do their schedules, cleaning the break room, sitting and talking, asking their opinion, looking at their schedules, trying to understand. And you know what? After a couple of weeks, I just became known as Jay, not the consultants. And what started happening is I would get a perspective from management. Well, we think this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. And when I first started, the staff in the OR would say, well, this is why. Mm -hmm. This is our world. But after a couple of weeks, they started telling me the true story, the real story of why things are happening. The lack of trust, the bitterness, cultural issues. And 
Once we got to that point, then I would have meetings with the staff and the leaders together. And I say, this is, and I'm not calling out anybody by name, but I'm saying, this is the story I'm getting from you. This is the story I'm getting from you. We're not on the same page. We all know that the focus of what we do every single day is the patient. Everybody agrees on that. But how we get there, we're not on the same page. And all of a sudden, the leadership started to realize the concerns of the team. And then the team started to realize the concerns and the priorities of the leadership team. And all of a sudden, you started to see them come together. And this adversarial relationship started to kind of fade away because, once again, we started to create alignment. Our our objectives and our goals and everything all started to merge into one place. It's kind of like working with clinical side versus the administrative side. People that on the clinical side that don't think that finances are important, I just tell them, if that's the case, turn in your next paycheck because finances aren't important. On the administrative side, if you see if the only thing that's important are finances, then I'm just going to go close the doors and we'll just wait for billing to pull in all this money because we don't need patients, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. And all of a sudden they start to understand that their perspective is limited based upon what side they're on, which is a wrong thing to say to begin with it should never be that way. But that was the easiest way for me to explain it is that once I understood the perspective of both sides and they understood the perspective of each other, all of a sudden I started to get this alignment and it started to take care of itself because then it was relationship driven, not consultant driven. And so that, to your point, is the meaningful, positive change. You just taking the time to see the world the way the people on the floor and the environment see the world and just bringing those two parties together. So simple, but somebody from an outside perspective has to have the time to be able to do that. And that gives me great courage or I guess solace to know that true lean operational excellence is really about communication, alignment on that purpose. Yes, we can teach them tools and techniques, but at the end, it's about a cultural change. And I do have to share a quick story. One of my most recent consulting assignments was, yes, I was to teach them operational efficiencies. I taught them white belt training, which is the basics of lean, of 5S, organizational efficiency, looking for the different kinds of waste. And while every person that I taught finished a little white belt project, a minor change, and not only did they build different skills, everybody said, when they left, they said, I'm starting to see the inefficiencies in the environment. They were starting to check with colleagues on what were they doing for their project so that maybe they could leverage those learning. We started changing the culture so that they could see their operations through the lens of inefficiency and the hard work that their people had to go through in order to just get through the day versus simply a transactional culture. And so I feel so grateful to be able to, through my work and the work that you do, open people's eyes up to what is already there, but sometimes we just can't see. Before we bring this to a close, I'm just going to ask you one more thing. And again, I was really thrilled to be a guest on your podcast, the uh, Leaving a Lasting Legacy and everything. What was the impetus or what was the reason for you creating a podcast, The Thousand Year Legacy? I've been a guest on quite a few podcasts and I've had a couple of people ask me, why don't you start your own podcast? And so I, I, it's something I'd never thought about doing. As I've gotten older, I'm almost 54 years old now and I've had a wonderful, wonderful life. And I look back at my, my 33 years of marriage and what keeps coming to mind is my family. 
keeps coming to mind are the people that I've impacted. If I was to jump on the road today and get struck by a semi and taken out, so my life is over, what would people say about me? And so when I started thinking about a podcast, and that's the focus of my podcast, I have a lot of business people, I have a lot of entrepreneurs, people with amazing stories. It's just about really what they want their legacy to be. Because if you think about it, the title is The Thousand Year Legacy Podcast. As weird as it sounds, Hitler left a legacy. It's a terrible, terrible legacy. Caesar left a legacy. Jesus left a legacy. And those legacies are going to last for more than a thousand years. We think a thousand years is a long time, but not really when you consider the impact that I may have on a person that they have, that that impact is reflected through their children, through the people that they work with, and it's multiplied generationally for hundreds, thousands of years, simply because I, my fingerprint, I left my fingerprint on them in a positive way that changed the direction of their life, hopefully for a positive way. And it's literally transforms people throughout generations. That's why I call it Thousand Year Legacy. That's why I did it, because to me, a legacy is far more than just the balance sheet for a company. And on that note, that is why I have been so excited to have this conversation with you because I too feel that the impact I make on my children, my husband and others is really what we're here to do is to serve because you never know how it's going to impact the future. So as we bring this to a close, are there any last closing thoughts that you may have for our listeners? And by the way, everybody should be listening to his podcast, follow his work. What would you share with our communities, please? Probably the most important thing that I could share with anybody, since this is a drop-in CEO podcast, is leadership is never about you. If you want to be a leader, if you're in a leadership role, that does not mean you're a leader. You're in a leadership role. If you're in a leadership role and you turn around and nobody's following you, you're not a leader. It doesn't matter what your title says. You are only a leader if people choose to follow you. And you have to give them a reason to follow you. If you don't give them a reason to follow you, don't complain that they're not following you. And people follow someone that they trust in and they believe, in fact, they'll jump across gorges, they'll jump off of bridges, they'll jump on a grenade for someone that they believe in. It's been proven time and time again. Leadership is never about you. If it is about you, you're not a leader. Thank you. And so I know people are going to want to connect with you. This has been a fantastic interview. How can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Sure. They can go to my company website. It's www.thelettere assoc.com. That's a bunch of tabs on the website. One of them is the podcast. So it has all of the episodes for the thousand year legacy. They can reach out to me through email there also. I am grateful for this interview. Thank you so much for being a fantastic guest. I wish you continued success. And again, thank you for being a guest on the Drop In CEO podcast. Thank you for having me, Deb. And again, thank you for all you do. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Drop In CEO podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. For more information about our consulting or coaching services, please visit my website at dropinceo.com or visit our Drop-In CEO Facebook group to continue the conversation. Now go out, lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.